But the risk in preaching through a book of the Bible is that I feel like there's some warrant to always kind of recap of where we've come from. So the, the problem with that is there's, you know, 28 chapters in Matthew, and eventually we're going to be binge-watching Grey's Anatomy from the third season on, trying to catch ourselves up from these things. So um, we're going to have to start condensing the, the amount of information we give as a recap um, but let's, let me bring you up to speed of where we've been so far in Matthew. It's actually pretty simple. Jesus is born. He brings with him an identity, a king, a Messiah, who he is. He demonstrates that through word and deed, and now people are starting to react to it. He is a threat to the current worldly kingdoms that exist, be it the kingdom of Rome, who is right now uh, ruling over the Jewish people, or be it the, the kingdom or uh, the current Jewish elite who have carved out for themselves a certain, uh, a certain space that Jesus is threatening with his words and actions. So they are reacting to him in that way, sometimes a negative way, sometimes a positive way. What we talked about last week is that he's healing people. Through these words and actions, people are saying, okay, there's, there's something there. I want to know more. I want to follow that. I want to be part of that. So we're introduced to Jesus, who he is, what he does, what he's bringing, and then people are reacting to it. Okay? That process brings him to where we're at today, which is a mountain to teach. Now, part of what we've talked about before um, was there's a bit of like a Moses uh, motif going on with what Jesus has come and gone. And so I'm going to go through these real quick with you because I think it helps provide a little bit of light and understanding as to what exactly is going on during the Sermon on the Mount. Um, comparisons between Moses and Jesus. Um, Israel was under oppressive rule during both of those times in the life of Moses. Um, it was under the Egyptian Pharaoh and Jesus. It was under Rome. There was a disobedience of authority that brings on violence to children. Uh, in Moses' time, the midwives have disobeyed. The, the Pharaoh said, uh, kill the Jewish uh, babies as they come out. They refused to kill the male children. The midwives did. Um, for, in Jesus' time, Herod had instructed the wise men to come back and tell us where this Jesus is. Um, they don't, they don't, uh, they disobey that as well. Both times the reaction is to say, kill all children under two, kill the males under two. That'll solve this problem. Uh, both escape from threat. Moses floats on the Nile to Pharaoh's palace in Egypt. Jesus also escapes with his family to Egypt to get away. Both pass through water before leading people out of oppression. Moses leads the people, the, the penultimate moment of leading the, uh, the people of Israel out of Egypt is, is the parting of the Red Sea. He passes through water. And now you have a new people that he's leading. Jesus is the same thing. We get that reaction after Jesus' baptism. We understand who he is. We understand what he's doing. He is the crowned king, the Messiah, the one that will be leading the people. So both of them lead a new people, a new nation towards the promises of God. For Moses, this is the Israelites to the promised land, the promise that uh, God had made through Abraham, Isaac, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses is directing them to that. Jesus is leading a new people, a new nation toward the promises of God. Ultimately, this applies to all peoples, to his kingdom. Both will face temptation. Moses and the nation of Israel faces temptation in the desert. Uh, Forty years they wander in the wilderness and they fail in their temptation. They respond incorrectly to the temptations that are before them. Jesus is tempted by Satan for 40 days in the wilderness and he is successful. He responds in the way uh, that is glorifying to God. And ultimately... We find the story of Moses leading the people out of Egypt. He ends up on a mountain, and God provides him the Ten Commandments, the law, of which it is his responsibility then to take down the mountain and spread to the people. And again, it's important how we understand this. We react poorly, I think, sometimes to the understanding of law. It's a, we think of it as a shackle, okay? the thing that restricts us, that binds us. But the truth is, is that law, in this essence, in, what, in the way God is providing it, it is freeing. 
It is what sets us free. It is what gives us identity as God's people under God. We know who we are. We know what God expects. That is freedom. Especially in a time in Moses' time, they didn't know what these gods wanted, right? They, they attributed random things to the will of the gods. Maybe the gods are upset with me. Maybe that's what's going on. We know who God is through the identity that he provides us through the law. So Moses hears this from God. He records it. He takes it down to the people. And now we come across Jesus on the Sermon, sermon on the Mount. So Jesus finds himself or takes himself up on a mountain. Before him sit the disciples. Down below there are crowds. His primary teaching, primary teaching is to the disciples. Now we, we understand later on in the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds can hear. Okay? But he is talking to the disciples. Now so look at the picture that we're given here. All these things, this, this motif of following around um, Moses' life and now man on mountain giving identity, law, if you want to think of it that way, to people whose job it is to then spread it out to the nations. It remains our job. That's what Jesus is doing here. When we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we need to understand it as Jesus providing an identity to the people with the kingdom that he's bringing. This is, this is how we function. This is how it works. This is who I am, and you can understand that more by me telling you what you are, how you function in the kingdom. Now, in our comparison, though, God gives, uh, God gives word to Moses, who then tells the people. Jesus gives word to the disciples who then tell the people. Jesus is not the Moses in this comparison, right? Simple, multiple choice question, always right answer. Jesus equals always God, never Moses. Okay? So in the the way that we're looking at this comparison, Jesus is giving law. Is he allowed to do that? Yeah, because he's God. There's debate as to whether Jesus is changing law, whether he alters things. We'll get into some of that more when we talk about how he fulfills the law. But here's the, ultimately where those debates lie. I don't, it doesn't bother me if he does. He's God. If what, Moses couldn't do that. The messenger can't change the law. But God certainly can. I get on board with that. So that's what we're talking about when we're, when we're approaching the Sermon on the Mount. Um, let's do a quick introduction of what I want you to think about or how I want you to digest the Sermon on the Mount. This is the king's inaugural address. And the Constitution all in one speech. Okay? It's foundational. In this speech, the king is describing his kingdom to us. He's selling us a vision. He is not yet telling us how to achieve it. He tells us what his kingdom is like and what its citizens are like. This should be received with the attitude of, hey, Jesus, this kingdom of yours sounds like a good place to live. He isn't telling us how to become kingdom citizens or how to accomplish his lofty expectations. He's not lifting the hood to show us how his kingdom works. He's just citing, if you want to think about performance metrics, okay? What goes on in the kingdom? Citizens of the kingdom act like the following. That's our Sermon on the Mount. The message is descriptive, not prescriptive. He's telling them how it works. If you don't like his vision for the kingdom, then who cares what the immigration process looks like? If what he's offering, you say, I don't want any part of that, it doesn't matter how you get in. What he's doing is describing what he's offering, the kingdom that, his is, that he is bringing and the identity of his that's associated with it. Okay, so let's, um, let's dig into the Beatitudes. First of all, what's a, what's a Beatitude? Okay, so this would be easier if this was a 50s doo-wop band. Because it isn't, uh, I think we have to parse it a little bit. Um, the Latin translation of the Greek word makarios, which is um, the blesseds, the blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, okay? That, that word is makarios. Um, and the, the Latin translation of that is a beatitudo, which means happiness, okay? So that's where the beatitudes come from, uh, is from that word. This is not the only place we see them. 
Um, you'll find them in the Old Testament, Psalms uh, 1. It's in Psalm 32, 40. There's some other psalm references there. Um, they're also in different places throughout Matthew, not just the Sermon on the Mount. You can also find them in Re- Revelation. And it's not strictly a biblical thing either. Pagan literature will use the same setup, blessed are, happy are, okay, uh, with a follow-up to that. So the Beatitude um, is, is not strictly a Sermon on the Mount thing. Um, but it is designed to do a certain thing. It's, it's designed to pack teaching into some easily rememberable, um, easily memorable um, packages, okay? A, a, a simple start, a simple end, okay? A pattern to it. There's eight of these kind of grouped together. It's cool that in the Greek, they actually all start with the same letter too. It doesn't come across in this way um, in English, but like it kind of reinforces the intent to say, I want you to take these home with you. I want you to remember what it is that I'm saying to you and I, I've packaged it in a way that you can understand. Jesus, the teacher, is concerned about what we can take with us. Okay? Um, there is both a spiritual and a physical reality, reality to these. Um, these show up in a different way in Luke on the Sermon on the Plain. Um, sometimes we, we, we segment those off and say, well, well Matthew has, a, has a, a spiritual guide for it, and um, Luke is a, is a physical thing. They're both true. These are spiritual and physical applications across the board. Okay? Um, so let, let, let's, let's read through these real quick. I'm going to focus on one today, but I want you to hear all of them because I think the context of understanding what Jesus is proposing here, what he's trying to get you to see about his kingdom is important for even understanding the one that we're going to focus on. This is Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down to teach, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the poor, pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, um, blessed, blessed is probably, I want to say blessed, right? I want to say blessed to that. Hymns will do that to you. Put a blessed in your mind. My grandma always did that too. Although my grandma was the same person who like when you were watching TV, that she would come in and say, hey, what are you listening to? From an era of like where you gathered around a radio. And so, you know, my grandma's speaking habits, I suppose, shouldn't always flow through to the things I'm doing. So I, 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 sometimes it's blessed. Sometimes it's blessed for me. Um, so we have to deal with a couple words in this, in this beatitude, I think, to understand it correctly. The first one is blessed. So some translations will show this as happy. Like I said, that's, that's the root of the beatitudes, right? Um, which is an understandable translation of the word, but to me, it seems inappropriate, I, at least how, how we use that word when we run up against something like, happy are those who mourn. Like, that becomes difficult for us to parse, I think, to digest. The underlying word here doesn't mean that someone is feeling happy. It's just that there's a situation is a happy one of which others ought to share. Now here's the deal. I'm not sure that clears a bunch of stuff up for me. That still seems pretty difficult based upon what Jesus is saying. That situation is to be envied. R.T. France in his commentary on Matthew notes that these should be read as commendations, congratulations, statements to the effect that a person is in a good situation, potentially even an expressive envy. That causes me to read these differently. Because if that's how I'm supposed to understand blessed, then I think that I don't understand these very well myself. It gives us pause on how we're to digest these beatitudes. These don't describe things that in our perspective, from our world, that we would consider 
happy situations. That we would consider to say, hey man, that is an enviable position. That is to be commended. If I understand them correctly. Our expectations are starting to run smack up against Jesus' description of how his kingdom functions. We need to be prepared for this. We need to be prepared that the things that we value are not the things that Jesus values. We need to be prepared for the fact that the things that we hold in high esteem, Jesus does not. The things that the world casts down, Jesus lifts up. We've got to be prepared for that. Not just to acknowledge it, but know that it is a fact of living in the kingdom of heaven. And that's what our citizens pursue. That is what we're going to run smack into in this Sermon on the Mount. And it's pretty fierce in the Beatitudes as we start. Second word, second phrase we've got to deal with is poor in spirit. Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean downtrodden. It doesn't mean stamped upon. It doesn't mean feeling worthless. See, where we run a risk here is we take something like this, poor in spirit, and we combine it with what's coming right up here in Matthew 5.38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. The risk that we run is we take these two things and we combine them and we make it sound like Jesus is calling us to live an Eeyore life. You're just supposed to live a way where people can stamp on you, hold tight, I'll eventually come back. That is not the kingdom that Jesus is offering. That is not the kingdom that Jesus is offering. If we look at this, and we'll go into more detail on these uh, when they, when we actually come up um, through our study of Matthew, but like when you say, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also, that's offensive. That's offensive to turn your other cheek to him and say, go ahead, do it again. In, in the law, Moses' law, okay, when you take someone to court, you cannot leave them naked. You are not allowed to leave someone uh, and take both their tunic and their cloak. So if you're, being, if you're being sued and you give them both garments and you walk out of the courtroom naked, who have you shamed? The man that sued you. That's not you lying down. You're fighting back. It's nonviolent. But you're fighting back. That's, Jesus is not calling you to be stamped on. If anyone forced you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Um, a Roman soldier could pick anybody in their kingdom and make you walk a mile. They were not legally allowed to make you walk any farther than that. So if he gives you his stuff and you start walking a mile and then you keep going after mile one, what position have you put that Roman soldier in? He's in a pickle. If he lets you keep walking, he could be arrested because he's not, he's not legally allowed to do that. You've taken control over that man because he first took, tried to take control over you. The perspective is important here, guys, because I want, I want to understand that God is not calling you to be stamped on. That's not what he's calling us to be, to let people mistreat you. This does not mean, however, that in the service of his kingdom, that you're not going to run into some rough people that treat you like crap. That's the truth. And those people need Jesus, and we will suffer through that as much as is humanly possible to share with them the good news of the kingdom. Okay, But he is not calling you to sacrifice yourself for nothing and to be the lowly Eeyore person. That's not what he's calling you to do. So if, if that's something you struggle with, what I want to make clear to you is that that's not what God is calling you to. Okay? There's something else underlying those things, but don't say, yes, but he said to be poor in spirit. That's not right. Okay? Don't live in that block. He's got kingdom work to do, and he can't do it when we're nailing our tail on. We still have to deal with poor in spirit, though. This is not getting any easier. I've disqualified that as a problem. This still does not get any easier. 
the message translates this verse this way. It says, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. What's less of you there is more of God and his rule. I think this is closer. I think this is closer to what he's talking about here. I have a qualm, I think, only with the phrase, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope because of how we would use it. This is not a situational thing. This is what we tend to say, I'm at the end of my rope. It's a culmination of a bunch of different ticky-tack things that are coming at us in the day-to-day lives. And then we want to say, you know what? All this stuff combined, I'm kind of at the end of my rope. Okay? It's a situational thing. If some of those things would relieve themselves, I wouldn't be at my end of my rope anymore. Okay? That, that would be my only qualm here. But I think the concept of saying, with less of you, there is more of God in his rule, that's the right thought when we're talking about poor in spirit. Here's, here's how I want us to think of it. Perhaps the best way is to say, when we're poor in spirit, is to render it as those who know that they need God. Those who understand that God is necessary in their lives. They need him. That's, that's what he's getting at for poor in spirit. Is that a blessed thing? Is that happy is the man who understands that he is in need of God because he sees himself rightly and he sees God rightly. That I can understand happy. That I can understand. That is a situation to be envied because that man understands himself correctly. He understands God correctly. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And the reason I bring that up is because I want to look at the word believes here because we also struggle with the, the phrase, the one that understands that he needs God. It's because both of those we can mistake for a cognitive assent. Oh yeah, I get it. I need God. Check the box. I believe it. I assume most of you would. But does your life reflect that you need God? Can I, can I broadcast your life as a TV program, turn down the volume, and watch your actions and say, that guy needs God. I can tell by what he does. In John 3.16, when he says, believes in him, should not perish but have eternal life, that believe, it means commit yourself entirely to his care. Again, not just agree. We're not just agreeing with God that, he's, that he is who he says he is. There's a consequence to the truth of that. Just like the, we're going to see that throughout the book of Matthew. We've seen it so far. There's a consequence to who Jesus is. You react to it one way or the other. We are not at liberty to say, yes, I believe in God. And by the way, it has nothing to do with my life. That's not the way it works. God with us does not work that way. So when we say we believe, we commit ourselves entirely to his care. We recognize we need it. When we say we understand that we need God, there's an impact to our lives. It reflects in what we do, not just the things that we say. This is not a casual agreement with God about who he is. That's not what Jesus is proposing here. I want to, let's read through these Beatitudes again. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to listen and see which ones apply to you. You're going to be upset with me later for why I had you do that. But just humor me here. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here's where we can mistake these, is that we treat it as a pick list. We treat it as a list that says, okay, one of those applies to me. I hunger and thirst for righteousness. Here's the deal. I, I, we miss it. I don't hunger and thirst for righteousness. I wish I did. Not in the way Jesus is talking about. I don't think I do. Merciful. Have I, okay, I've been merciful. Okay, I got one. Good. Kingdom is for me. 
That's not what he's offering. We, we mistake that list if we pick from it and say, okay, good, I'm covered. I wanted to make sure the kingdom was for me. Good, here's an attribute that belongs to me. The kingdom then does belong to me. He is describing a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. All of them. All of them. Are we fighting to be poor in spirit? Are we fighting for that? I want to be the man that understands that I am helpless without God. Am I fighting for that? Here's the worldly perspective. That's weak. Okay? But God's, God's kingdom doesn't work the way the world works. And so am I fighting for a complete definition of what it is to live in the, in the kingdom of God? We've got to be careful that we don't just, just assume that, okay, I fit one of these qualities. This is, this is a total person. This is a citizen of the kingdom of God. We also mistake this because we think it doesn't apply to us. We say, okay, these Beatitudes are for Coach Jesus who looks out on his bench and he says, okay, I got, I got 100 people that are trying to follow me. Uh, 50 of these guys are doing fine. 50 of these guys seem to be struggling. Their, their, their life circumstance uh, isn't the same as everybody else's. So I'm going to go in there and kind of cheer them up and make sure that they know that, that this is for them. The kingdom is also for them even though they're in a rough circumstance. That's not what he's doing. He's not encouraging those that need it. Anybody who's not me. Hey, you're poor in spirit? Good, Coach Jesus will cheer you up. It's okay. It'll be fine. No, we're called to be poor in spirit. Called to hunger and thirst for righteousness. To be meek. Put that on your resume. Hey, strong quality. Meekness. And I understand I need other people. It's not a worldly value, guys. But that's what God is calling us to. This is the definition of what it's like to live in the kingdom. Now, when we see the word poor, and Luke stops at poor. He just says, blessed are the poor. Now, I think he's got the same thing in mind here. But it's interesting. When we talk about people like marginalized portions of society, they tend to get it better. They tend to see it better, clearer. Because they don't have the, they don't have the blindness that we have. I've got blindness in my life. I don't even know about right? That's what makes it blindness. I do not know that I am blind in some of the things in my life where I, I feel like I see the kingdom correctly and I don't get it at all. Because how often can I fight for my own thing? I can provide for myself. I buy my own clothes. I buy my own food. I can control my own circumstances. It's cold outside. It's cold outside. You stood outside in the cold for very long lately? Freaking cold, okay? I stand outside my house for 10 minutes and I'm cold. I get to go back inside. Some people don't have control of their own circumstances like that. Okay, they're outside for 10 minutes. You know what's going to be next 10 minutes? Cold. You know what cold, you know what weather is? That's oppressive. That's oppressive. It's coming. And you can't do anything about it. If you can't control to put a roof over your head, you can't buy more coats to put on your body. That is oppressive. 10 minutes go by, you're still in the cold. You know what's going to happen tomorrow? Cold. You know what's going to happen two weeks from now? Cold. That you can't do anything about. You have no control over your circumstances you can't distract yourself because you don't have anything to eat you can't grab a toy or whatever it is that you got hanging around your place to remind you that you're not cold it's hard to get together with family or friends they may not even be around you know you lack community i control most of my own circumstances probably to my detriment of how i understand the kingdom of god does jesus point out the marginalized yes because they're most likely to get it they're most likely to understand. 
They need God. They are the ones that are mourning. They are hungered and thirsting for righteousness because it is to them that the injustice is being done. Here's where we have, a, we have it rough. Hear that correctly? We have to fight for the right perspective. We are born, generally speaking, into a society in which we have to fight to understand that. And it is a blindness that comes with being born here. It's not internal, it's not implicitly sinful. Okay? Don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying the lives that we lead are implicitly sinful and not honoring to God. But what I'm saying to you is, is that it can easily distract us from what God says the kingdom of heaven is. Look at my attributes in life, the ways I would describe my life to other people. And does it show up in the list of Beatitudes as a person who the kingdom of heaven is made for? Hey, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a quick learner. And I do a lot of hard work at, uh, at my job. And, you know, citizen of the kingdom of God? It can be both. But don't miss it. Don't miss the values of this world for what Jesus is otherwise calling us to understand. See, this is not a description of, of a casual commitment, of a convenient relationship, of a checkbox. The Beatitudes are held up against a world value system that thinks, acts, and lives differently than the kingdom of Jesus. It's as much as an indictment of the world as it is a call to live differently because if the world was pursuing the same things Jesus was, no one would be poor in spirit. No one would be singled out as meek and fighting for justice and righteousness. Here's our big question. Is where does our definition for what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven come from? And does it line up with what Jesus is talking about? It's the same. We run the same risk. Like, uh, what is a Christian? What does a Christian do? And we, and we write things down like, uh, well, we, we, we pray and, and we fast and, you know, we, we, we meet with people. And if we make a list of the stuff, what does Jesus do? And he's hanging out with, with, with taxpayers or tax collectors and sinners. Um, and he's dealing with the marginalized society. And then we look at our two lists and we say, where did we get our definition from of what it means to be a Christ follower? And we look at the Beatitudes. That's our definition of, of citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And where does sometimes get our identity from as, as Christ followers? Is it, is it what goes on in the, in the Western Christian church? Is that, our, is that the right barometer? It's a risky one. We might be able to keep up with the spiritual Joneses, but unless they're keeping up with Jesus... We have a problem. And it's easy to look around and say, you know, I, I give more than some, but not as much as others. And uh, I spend a little bit of time doing this and, you know, but, but not as much as some people, but, but more, it's definitely more than that guy. That's way unhealthy. That's way unhealthy. Our definition of what it is to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven has nothing to do with what the guy next to you does. Okay? It's easy. Me. It's easy for me to do that, to look around and say, okay, I'm trying to get a gauge of whether I'm, I'm really following God here. And I look around and I, and I try to get, okay, more than that guy, less than this guy. That's unhealthy. That's not right. Citizen, where are we getting our definition from? We've got to fight for that perspective, guys. It's going to be in the Sermon on the Mount all over the place. Okay? Fighting for what that means. And what we have to be willing to do is let things die that are not that definition. Okay? Let the comparisons die. Let our keeping up with the spiritual Joneses die. Jesus provides the definition of who is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Um, I bro- my car broke down this week. I was driving... Uh, oh, shoot, I always got to tell the backstory. It's dumb. Um, I was going to Jefferson because I buy things off a government auction website, right? The government's auctioning stuff off all over the place. Half the crap in here is from a government auction, okay? So I filled our building with junk from school districts. Um, 
So anyway, I want to, I, my, my wife needs a color printer for some baby books that she prints. And so uh, they had a color laser printer for like 10 bucks. No one else was building on this because they offered this printer and then a bunch of junk that nobody wants, like a slide projector or something that I, I don't need. Um, so I won this thing for 10 bucks. I'm pretty happy with myself. But if you don't pick it up soon enough, they start charging you for holding on to the thing another 10 bucks a day. And I thought, I'm, I'm losing my value quickly. I need to go get this thing. So I take off work a little bit early and I start driving to Jefferson from downtown, from my job downtown. And, uh, and my car, it stops going. I, I don't know how to explain this any better. Like, I push gas, it does nothing, okay? So it pulls over the side of the road. I'm on I-3580, head northbound. And uh, it's, you know, about 1.45, 2 o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday. It's cold. It's cold outside, right? And uh, I sit in my car, and I think, I don't, I don't know what to do here. Like, I don't, uh, I stink at car maintenance. Um, like, between Mike Foost and Rick Babcock, I, I'm reminded to change my oil. Uh, every so often, and put air in the tire. My tire, my tire on my passenger side has had a nail in it for three months. Rather than fix it or replace the tire, I fill it up with air every two days and think, oh, I should do something about that. Okay? That's what I do. This is the guy you're dealing with. <laughs> so, so anyway, I'm broke down on the side of the road, and I think, I don't know how to, I, I, I don't know what to do here. So I call, um, I call my father-in-law, because he's the type of guy that I can kind of explain uh, the symptoms, whatever. I have, a, I have a Bluetooth reader that you plug into the, the car. Okay, it's what a guy like, like me does who doesn't know how to do anything. I'm like, I found the code. And then it explains something that I don't understand. I'm like, good. That's what I tell the car guy to make it, make it seem like we're on the same level. I mean, this fella. So anyway, so I called my father-in-law. I kind of explained the situation, what went on. So, because what I wanted the answer to was, is this something I can fix here, like someone could help me fix while on the side of the road, or do we need to get it out of here? So he says, well, it sounds like you need to get it out of there. Uh, so I call the tow guy. He takes it down to, um, he takes it down to Carlisle where I get my car worked on. Um, but he's gone for like two hours. Okay, I called uh, my brother Mike in the meantime, um, just to kind of let him know what the situation was. He said, I'll come get you if you need him. I'm like, I'll hang out. Maybe the tow guy thing will work out. We'll see what happens. Okay, so I'm sitting in the car and I thought, well, shoot, uh, I might as well work on sermon stuff because it's Friday afternoon and I'm not done. So, uh, so I start thinking through and I think, the, the God has just handed me a sermon illustration. And I stink at sermon illustrations. Like, Bible, yell at you type of thing, that's my style, right? Telling you a story, eh, <laughs> I'm iffy. So I thought, but he handed me the perfect illustration of the exact thing that I wanted to talk about, which is understanding that you are in need and you can't help yourself, but it does not calling you necessarily to be weak to do that. And so here, here's, here's what happens. So I'm sitting there for two hours, starting to get cold, right? And the tow guy eventually shows up. He's an hour and 45 minutes out because he's, he's dropping stuff off coming from Indianola. And I'm hungry. I did not eat lunch. I ate breakfast, and I can't walk anywhere because I'm waiting for this tow guy. And uh, like, uh, I didn't eat lunch because I thought, uh, as a consolation for me going to Jefferson, I thought, oh, I'll just stop and get some McDonald's on the way. Kudos to you, Ben. Um, but so I hadn't eaten for like a long time. And uh, I thought, hey, man, there's pizza in my back seat. Now, here's the deal. <laughs> I know what you're thinking, right? Pizza in the back seat. Iffy, right? So Pants and I uh, uh, had gone up, my friend Pants, had gone up to, uh, to a harmonica deal the night before. And uh, we bought a pizza, and we couldn't eat all of it. And I said, I'll take two pieces, and I'll, I'll take it home to the kids, right? So I, I did with it, which is what I do with, with every uh, food that I take home from restaurant, is I set it in the back seat and forget about it. That's exactly what happened, okay? So um, I, uh, I'm in the car, and I think, hey, man, there's pizza back there. And I thought, it's been cold enough. It's like a refrigerator out here. I can eat this pizza, okay? So sitting in my car, it's getting cold. Tow man's on the way. I got some food that I otherwise didn't know I was going to have. Tow guy shows up, takes my car down to Carlisle, who lives next, like within... Five, ten minutes of Carlisle that has an extra car for me, uh, my brother Mike. Has a car sitting in his place, and he says, Ben, you can have this. You can drive it for as long as you want until they get your car fixed. And so I look at my circumstances, and I say, my car broke down on the side of the road, and I have no idea how to fix it. I do not have the skills. I need help. 
And recognizing that I need help, I got someone that gave me advice enough to know that I get it out of there. I got a free ride to Carlisle that provided a man who has a car that I can use as long as I want to. And I was no longer hungry because I ate some day-old pizza sitting in the back of my car. And here's the deal. I can't afford to fix my car. I don't think yet. We'll see how much it is. Okay? But at the time, at the very time that my car was broke down on the side of the road, my wife was at a chiropractor's office painting a mural on the wall, generating cash uh, that I think we were going to use for what sounded like funner things. Uh, but we'll ultimately, hopefully, fix my car. And so, ultimately, what I came to was, is that, like, I knew that I needed help. I just did. I could not solve my own situation. I wasn't downtrodden, spit upon, I wasn't poor, okay? But I knew that I needed someone to help me. And in that same way, I think we can, I think we can confidently say, I need God. I need God. I don't need you to stamp on my face for me to know that I need God. I need him. I know this. Strong, bold ways, work for the kingdom. I need God. And I should fight against anything in my life that puts up barriers to that where I think I don't. Where I take my own life into my hands and say, I will provide for myself. I will call God when someone's dying. I'll call him before then. Right? I won't just call God when I'm, when I'm out of money or when I don't know how to handle a situation. Because that says, God, I don't need you here. I only need you here. That's where we're mistaken. He's not the life raft. He's the boat. Stay in the boat. Okay? Uh, we don't have time to go through this today, but here's what I want you to take with you. Um, is, is Psalm 40. I was trying to think of a biblical example outside of my car story of who I thought identif- like lived this. And I think it's King David. I think it's King David. And here's the deal. First, first blush, uh, who is uh, those who are poor in spirit, I don't think King David comes to mind. But if we understand the definition of where that sits, to say that he understands that he needs God, but lives a bold life for the kingdom, I think David's our man. Look at Psalm 40. There's a couple cool things in there. You get that perspective from him. You also, there's also a couple of free beatitudes in there just for the benefit of life, okay? He's a warrior, he's a ruler, he firmly acknowledges that he needs God. Here's what we're going to fight for. Over the next months, as we continue to study Matthew, we need to fight for God's perspective. We need to fight to understand what is the world values, what Jesus values, and get on board with that, okay? And recognize that, like, we are going to have to fight for those things. Some of it are just our circumstances. We live in a world in which I've, there's blindness inherent in my system. I have a job, blindness. The marginalized understand it better. We have to fight for their perspective. Let's pray.